0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, Rational Security listeners. Scott R. Anderson here with another quick update. Due to a small holiday miracle, we are pushing back the recording of our end-of-year episode. That means you have a few extra days to get in your listener-submitted topics and object lessons for us to discuss. So send them in to rationalsecurityatlawfarmedia.org, but no later than December 23rd to get them in for our end of year episode. Okay, folks, thanks so much. Enjoy this week's episode. We are recording, at least several of us, from our childhood bedrooms, and one of us from our child's bedroom, <laughs> for some reason. In that, in <laughs> case. Let's give a quick tour of, of the main features here. Eugenia, what what is the big feature that jumps out to you of your bedroom? What what is, what is it you want to share with our listeners?
1: So this room has been decorated with childhood pictures of me and my sister and it's just very awkward like all of the pictures are very awkward so i'm just surrounded by the ghost of past me <laughs> and uh, apparently my parents thought this was cute this was nice um i am traumatized by by the memories <laughs> <laughs> i did not remember myself looking that awkward but it was that. <laughs> the haircuts
0: god i really want to see this now because uh, you revealed yourself to be such a video game nerd i really feel like i didn't get a full sense of you, henya like high school you, uh that i would have liked oh. to see Nope, well, nope. <laughs> quinta you ha- what is your your the biggest feature from your room you want to share i think this is what listeners are really curious about what was high school quinto's decorating yeah instinct?
2: so this this is my childhood bedroom i think Again, podcasting, as Alan likes to say, not a visual medium. So what you cannot see, listeners, is the giant chart uh, from XKCD over my shoulder that uses uh, the DW-Nominate political science score uh, to track the political affiliation of members of both houses of Congress over time from the founding through, I want to say like 2008, maybe. Um, But it looks really cool. It's like it looks kind of like arteries. Um, It's very like artsy.
0: It looks I'm, very punk rock for such it. a nerdy poster. Punk
2: rock! Wow, I would not have gone there, but okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's got a little bit of a, a little bit of a like you know jagged sort of vibe. You look at it from a distance, as I sing okay. now, it was like it looks a little rugged. Yeah, yeah. What's fun cool. about it
2: is that you can see exactly where the civil war happens because suddenly there's just a big bite out
1: of one of the sides. When, uh... <laughs> That's the definition of cool, right? <laughs>
3: Exactly. I think given our uh, recent white elephant experience at Lawfare HQ, we can safely say that we are all nerds together because I think that the most stolen gift was Eugenia's actually, because it was a mug that had all of the Supreme Court decision not all obviously, but a lot of Supreme Court decisions where the losing party would disappear when the mug was full of liquid.
2: And That'll That's just winners. awesome. And I also, I, I had that mug already. It's a good mug. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, thrilled to be back in the virtual studio with my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello, and in lieu of our dearly departed, for the time being, not dead, don't worry, uh, third co-host, Alan Rosenstein, uh, we are thrilled to have with us two of our frequent guests from the Lawfare team, Executive Editor Natalie Orpit and Cyber Fellow Eugenia Lostry. Natalie, Eugenia, thank you for joining us again on this very special holiday edition, kind of, of Rational Security.
3: <laughs> Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be back.
0: And this is indeed a very special holiday edition because not only are we all scattered to the four winds recording from various corners of the country as we've returned home for the holidays, but we had, uh, as I laid down last night to a long winter's nap, having just donned my cap, there arose quite a clatter on the front lawn here in Washington, D.C. In the state of Colorado, I should say. Uh,
2: far, far from Washington,
0: D.C. Far, far from Washington, D.C., but where I will I'll be going myself for my own holiday shortly is uh, a decision come down that really threw our whole plans here for a bit of a loop. Uh, so we called it an Audible, and we will be talking about this major legal decision, uh, along with a couple of items that have really popped up here at the end of the week, or pardon me, at the end of the year, making this a big national security week as we enter into this whole last holiday run for our first topic this week rocky mountain bye that's a shane harris, harris patented goodbye uh for those who may not recognize it colorado supreme court has bid goodbye to former president donald trump's 2024 candidacy for now at least holding in a 4-3 ruling that he is disqualified as a candidate by virtue of section three of the 14th amendment will this ruling hold and where will it go from here topic two Houthis to see so rudely, a wop-bop-a-loo-bop, a loop a wop bam boom For the record, Benjamin Wittes baited me into giving away a lot of my better Houthis titles last week, <laughs> where he made me go through a run of Paul Simon references. Uh, so this was the one I was left with, for better, for worse. <laughs> Attacks by Yemen-based and Iran-backed Houthi rebels have led major shippers to avoid the Red Sea, dealing a serious blow to global commerce. The United States and a coalition of allies has announced a new maritime effort, the perhaps too aptly named Operation Prosperity Guardian to Keep Trade Flowing, what will this military operation look like, and what will it mean for regional stability in the global economy? And topic three, not so Buenos Aires, question mark? I'm so sorry for that. <laughs> Apologies on all fronts. Pronunciation, the name, everything combined. Argentina has a new president in the form of eccentric populist economist and literal dog father, Javier Milei. What does his election mean for the future of the country? We have a live, live dispatch from Buenos Aires to talk it over. It's, it's a B-plus effort, guys. That's all I can do. This is not my strong pronunciation, sadly. For our first topic, let me hand it over to me for my favorite type of transition. Because, of course, we had a big development happen late last night. We saw a 200-plus page opinion issued by the Colorado Supreme Court upholding in part and overruling in part a district court opinion or a trial court opinion, I should say, um, that had held that former President Trump had committed the act of insurrection, but was not disqualified from Section 3 of the 14th Amendment because Section 3 did not reach the office of the presidency. A Ford Justice majority on the Colorado Supreme Court reached the opposite conclusion on the latter point and determined, in fact, that Section 3 does reach the presidency and, by virtue of the district court's conclusion that the president had committed insurrection, that former President Trump was now disqualified from the Colorado uh, presidential race in 2024, from the Colorado primary. Um, That is, Scheduled to happen in March and for the deadline for the printing of ballots of which is in January. But it left Trump's name on the ballot pending a presumptive appeal to the Supreme Court, um, which will finally resolve the matter, meaning this is really more about the long term election, not necessarily what is going to happen in the soon to come primary Quinta, let me start with you on this question. What jumped out to you about this ruling? What was notable about it? What does it tell us about where this issue set is headed? And what what are the big takeaways for what seems like a pretty monumental decision, although mostly in part, I think, because it tees up what is going to be the real monumental decision most likely, if that seems right to you?
2: Well, I should put my cards on the table to begin with and say that first off, The opinion and the three dissenting opinions are a collective 215 pages, um, and I read them at like 10 p.m. last night while just absolutely housing Peppermint Bark. Uh, So I have not had an opportunity (laughs) to look through them super closely.
0: It's hard to make sense of the law through the sugar haze that kicks in eventually (laughs) after so much Peppermint Bark. I understand. Exactly.
2: Exactly. So this concerns uh, section three of the 14th Amendment, the newly cool section of the 14th Amendment, which was passed after the Civil War. And I think the sort of very, very short and oversimplified version is that it is about barring people who had previously taken an oath to the United States and then engaged in insurrection from holding future office. That's complicated. There are a bunch of different moving pieces. The, the short version of what the Colorado Supreme Court ruled is that, first off, January 6th was an insurrection under the terms of the amendment. Second off, that Trump engaged in it. And also that the presidency is an office under the United States and the president is an officer under the United States, um, meaning that Trump is disqualified uh, because of having previously been the president and then also disqualified from being president in the future. The trial court in Colorado had essentially said, yes, January 6th was an insurrection. Yes, Trump engaged in it. But the presidency is not an office and the president is not an officer. They're my meaning, essentially, Trump is not covered by this provision. Um, the other really important aspect, which I want to make sure that I, I don't leave out, is that uh, Section 3 is self-executing, uh, meaning that it doesn't matter that there's not a explicit law that Congress passed or, or that you know there's not a conviction of of Trump for insurrection or anything like that. Given that this is on the books in the constitution, that means that Colorado is able to implement it however it likes and that the Colorado election law is such that Trump is barred from holding the presidency. Again, a lot of different moving pieces here. This will go to the Supreme Court. Um, The Colorado Supreme Court is clearly aware of that. Um, They stayed the ruling until January 4th. Um, which is the deadline for ballot printing for the Colorado primary um, and said that the ruling will continue to be stayed if Trump does a petition for, for cert to the Supreme court by that point. I think if you read through the majority opinion, it is very clear that the Colorado judges are writing for an audience of the conservative judges or justices on the Supreme court. And I mean that in a couple of ways. One is that um, the, Uh, Opinion relies very heavily on a Law Review article by Will Bode and Michael Stokes Paulson, which makes a originalist argument that the 14th Amendment is self-executing and bars Trump from the presidency. This is an article that came out uh, a few months ago and made uh, quite a big splash because it's sort of folks within the conservative legal movement arguing that Trump is barred uh, from from the presidency.
3: I also just want to point out that that law review article by Bowden Paulson thanks as one of its two primary sources, a piece that we published in Lawfare.
2: That's impact, folks. Uh-
0: Good <laughs> log rolling. Good <laughs> log, log rolling, Natalie. Well played. I am the executive editor. <laughs>
2: As, as part of that, uh, so the, the Colorado ruling also relies really heavily on original public meaning, which is a particular strain of originalism, to make the argument uh, that this was an insurrection, that uh, the presidency is an office, that the president is an officer, um, and that the 14th Amendment is self-executing. Um, so it's kind of using... Uh, mode of constitutional analysis that will be appealing to many of the conservative justices. It also, Lawrence Hurley at NBC uh, pointed out that it actually cites a opinion that Justice Gorsuch wrote when he was on the 10th Circuit uh, Court of Appeals interpreting Colorado election law. Um, So it struck me that the Colorado judges are, they obviously know that this is going to the Supreme Court and they're writing with a sort of conservative jurisprudence in mind, hoping that this will hold up. What will the Supreme Court do? I have absolutely no idea. My favorite suggestion from uh, Rafi Malkonian, who's uh, the dean of appellate Twitter, as he has called, is that the Supreme Court should, and I quote, just deny cert and be legends. That would create a lot of problems, but it would be extremely funny. I think that they're going to grant cert, like they have to, how they will handle the case, I truly have no idea. Um, and I'm curious what your all's thoughts are, because this just strikes me as uncharted territory, frankly. I mean, and this these are like my, you know, peppermint bark adult initial thoughts. I haven't had time to go back and read the full ruling. We haven't even touched on the dissents. There is so much here. I definitely recommend that people go look at our lawfare coverage of the 14th Amendment, especially our our colleague Roger Parloff's excellent uh, reporting on the subject. Um, But that's that's sort of where I am now.
3: I have another advertising for lawfare point on that, which is that our lawfare's first article examining the 14th Amendment Section 3 disqualification provision was on January 19th, 2021. So we were all over it way before it was cool.
0: This was actually the topic I distracted myself with while I was waiting for my son to be born between his due date and when my wife was uh, actually induced. And I remember because I have a, like a quarter written lawfare post about it that I never got <laughs> to come back to because I then had a child to raise. So sadly, so it's been on our minds for a while to say God least. damn Everything it, Reese. You raised 2021. I know, Reese, what were you doing, man? Help me out here. But please, let's go on. This podcast is devolving
3: into who can be the nerdiest among us.
0: That's correct. <laughs>
3: Um. Yeah, I mean, Quinta, I agree. I think that this raises a lot of interesting questions, especially as it pertains how, to how the Supreme Court is going to deal with it. But, you know, the the Colorado Supreme Court, in, in the opinion, in the majority opinion, sort of touches on this, in a way, which is to say that, in a footnote, I noticed they they compared their ruling to the ruling out of Michigan, which came out the opposite way. And they distinguished it very strongly on the on the point that Michigan's election law, unlike Colorado's election law, doesn't include the term qualified candidate, doesn't have a role for Michigan courts in determining the qualification of um, primary candidate, presidential primary candidates, and has limitations on the Michigan Secretary of State's responsibilities So, you know, one thing that I think is going to be missing quite a lot from the broader commentary on this decision as people immediately jump to, you know, what does this mean for other states? What does this mean for the country writ large? Is the fact that I think at least half of the majority opinion is on the threshold questions of whether the Colorado Supreme Court can even consider what the meaning of the disqualification provision is in Section 3. So I think that's a really important point to make um, in the sense that both it, it limits what other states will do because they have to look at their own laws and the o- their own vehicles through which the courts can or can't, depending on how they roll, even consider interpreting Section 3 and its meaning because there isn't a cause of action under under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in and of itself. There has to be some other mechanism for getting the question of disqualification before a court. Um, and that's going to be much more challenging in other jurisdictions. But it also leads to, you know, there there is a narrowing of what the Supreme Court will be able to do on this, because it's going to have to decide whether it can jump the vast variety of state laws and state court jurisdictions to consider these sorts of things and come up with a a type of ruling that will apply nationwide, um, which of course it is able to do by simply interpreting the question of what Section 3 means as applied to Trump. But it, it will be an interesting discussion, uh, among, especially as we are waiting for the Supreme Court to decide whether to grant cert. I agree with Quinta. I think there's no way that they don't and there is a lot of discussion about what this means for other states. I mean, my my takeaway would be they're all going to be aware that Colorado came out this way. Maybe they'll also reference the decision in their own decisions, as this one did with Michigan. But in terms of the law, there's a lot of variety. And this doesn't necessarily mean much at all about how, how other state courts will come out.
0: Well, so I'm curious about that. And I would actually flip the emphasis a little bit. I mean, I think presumptively, if the Supreme Court rules on this and reaches the section three of the 14th amendment issue, it resolves that for the whole country. I can't see a holding on the section three of the 14th amendment. That would be contingent on future application of state law, federal law, maybe Um, what they could do is if they choose to dodge the issue, right? And this is something that we saw um, that Ned Foley, a friend of ours, uh, who's writ- wrote about this for the Washington Post several months ago, came on the Lawfare podcast to talk about it, expressed concern about. I mean, he said basically there is still this live idea that is a, a species of, but maybe not even the most radical version of the independent state legislature doctrine uh, or theory that basically says that, you know, there's supposed to be a limitation to how much Supreme Court, state Supreme Courts can overrule the election laws enacted by state legislatures. And if the state court pushes too far, the federal Supreme Court can come in and supersede them on a state law matter that would normally, the state court would be the highest authority on. And so you could see that happening here, right? We saw two of the three dissenting justices hint their opinion on an interpretation of the state law saying, but for two actually fairly different reasons, this state legal procedure can't reach this issue. So if the Supreme Court comes back and says, hey... Colorado Supreme Court, you have overstepped your bounds, much as we reached kind of in Bush v. Gore, or a plurality hinted they would have reached in Bush v. Gore. You have said, you have interpreted this in a way that too far departs from the intent of the state legislature in enacting this law. And I haven't dug deep enough into this law to think whether this is remotely credible or not, but this is the way the argument like this would work, I think. Then they could say, we're going to bump this back to you to determine and consider it with the actual correct interpretation of this law as the state legislature intended it. And then in that case, you are at the point where another avenue would have to be found to force the Section 314th Amendment issue to the Supreme Court to be resolved. But if the Supreme Court is presented with that issue squarely and doesn't think it can dodge it that way, and I think that's the only way it can dodge it, I don't think there's a Colorable standing issue here. I don't think there's a colorable a lot of the typical outs, political question doctrine, like you know, none of that really seems applicable here. This seems like the main out. And if they don't choose to take it or don't feel they can take it here, I think they actually do have to decide the issue in a way that applies to all the states. So I don't think the other state procedures will be a, a huge barrier.
2: Yeah. So just just to build on that, this is the argument that that I was referencing that we were having earlier, although it sounds like we're actually on the same page. Um, I think so. Right. You can imagine a kind of total chaos outcome where the court decides not to weigh in on the 14th Amendment grounds. And then through whatever mechanism, either in the Colorado case or they kick it back to the states, you end up with states making their own rulings on uh, the grounds of state law. And then through independent state legislature, challenges. Uh, those challenges are litigated up to the federal courts and the Supreme Court, which then has to weigh in on the matter of state law. I think that's the like maximum chaos outcome. I don't actually think that that's that likely just because the Supreme Court in Moore v. Harper really foreclosed some of the more extreme independent state legislature theory variations and did say, you know, okay, state courts, like don't get too far out over your skis. Um, And deviating from what the legislature uh, seems to have set out or what state constitutions set out. And I think that that kind of indicates that the the Supreme Court isn't like super eager to jump in on those matters. They will if they feel like they need to. But I don't know how appealing it looks as kind of an escape route. Um that said, I mean, if you're John Roberts, like do you really want to be one, the one left holding this hot potato? Like on the one hand that is your job, but on the other hand it, it seems to be to be very appealing to just like fling it back. Um I don't know at who or how. It also, I mean, the the thing that's so strange about this is that I don't know. I I think there's a reasonable argument that the Colorado Supreme Court is right here on 14th Amendment grounds. And yet on the like, i more than reasonable. I think they are right. But it's politically speaking, it's so hard to imagine the justices getting together and saying like, yeah, let's disqualify this guy from the ballot. Um, Even setting aside the fact that this is a court that has been systematically friendlier to Republican than Democratic candidates and policies. And I think it's, reasonable to be open about that at this stage just the optics of the court doing that um especially at a time when we know that the justices are really leery about their political legitimacy seems hard so i feel like i would bet that like roberts is going to try to find some way to be cute about this i don't know how he will do it um the the avenues for cuteness seem to be rapidly narrowing I'm there's i'm having a little bit of a flashback to when roberts was forced to Uh, sit there and oversee the impeachment trial in in 2019, 2020, and just looked like he would have rather been anywhere else on on planet Earth. But them's the brakes, man.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, there what is one other out here that this clearly tees up, and that's the third descent. And it's kind of a family of outs. The third descent grabs one thread of we've seen the others in other Section Three litigation, and that's the kick it to Congress out. Um, words is that you interpret the the in this case the one justice interpreted uh, Section Three as not being self-executing, require Congress to execute. That's the position taken by uh, Justice Salmon Chase in the in. Griffin's case back in the nineteenth century, um, when this was coming up in other heated political post Civil War context, uh, although that decision was not a Supreme Court decision, he was sitting in a different capacity, so it doesn't it's just you know guidance here, it doesn't actually bind anyone.
3: And the posture was quite different.
0: And the posture was very different. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's a very different case. There's a reason why a lot of people haven't found it persuasive. But what's persuasive depends on institutional context and like the situation where a Supreme court, a body that is concerned about the fact that it's biggest, you know, vulnerability, uh, even for like very pro Supreme court people, everybody acknowledges the fact that's a democratic deficit, right? It's our least democratic branch of government in a lot of ways. The fact that they're asking, asked to being stepped in, or with to use 150-year-old law to overrule potentially the results of 2024 elections, that's something that they're going to be very resistant to doing in ways that arguments that may not seem very persuasive on the their plain face may become more persuasive. You want evidence of that. Like, look at the Supreme Court decision we just got. All seven justices on the Colorado Supreme Court, they're all Democratic appointees. You know, this is... Several justices are people who are probably not inclined to be super excited to see former President Trump on the ballot, um, but they still had trouble getting there. Now, four of them did. And again, I think it's a a sign of both the fact these arguments have become more normalized uh, by the bowdoin pelson piece and a lot of other scholarship on this, although I do think that piece has been kind of like the biggest uh, weight in that direction that we've seen um, recently. Because of its appeal to potentially the Supreme Court, but it's going to be a big step. Uh, I don't think it's impossible, but I also don't think people should should kind of get their hopes up on the legal front that this is going to actually resolve for President Trump's uh, candidacy one 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 final way or the other.
3: Yeah, and I think it's worth emphasizing that the you know as I mentioned before, the first half of the opinion is on matters of Colorado state law, and the dissents also are on matters of Colorado state law. I I believe all three are, or is one of them about the merits of the section three interpretation?
0: Only two are about Colorado State Law. The third one I think is just about section three.
3: And yeah, the fact that it that dissent holds that it's not self-executing.
0: It, exactly. That's my rec- although I I may have missed something in there where they were referencing each other a little bit. They're they're pretty pithy yeah. dissents. They obviously were coordinating a little bit.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting though is that's worth emphasizing or or at least saying explicitly is that no one is actually getting to dispute the question of whether January 6th constituted an insurrection. And actually, the in the majority opinions discussion of it, they don't talk only about January 6th, they talk about the lead up to January 6th as part of an insurrection. But they actually, even the majority, dodges having to define insurrection. So, you know, courts are finding ways to get around what I think most people are thinking of as what these decisions are about, which is courts weighing in on whether Donald Trump was responsible for engaging in an insurrection. There's there's just a lot of layers of law before even getting to that question. And courts are finding ways to not have to opine directly in a lot of occasions on. Whether Donald Trump engaged in insurrection?
0: Well, you know, in some ways, I think that's the most remarkable part about this is that so they could review that trial court decision, right? The trial court in this case did determine, as a factual matter, he did right. do that, and it is a deferential standard. It's worth noting that's not uncommon; that's like typical. I don't know, I don't know exactly how Colorado works at this, but I'm a, it's clear from the opinions it's deferential standard, and in federal court, would be a fairly substantial deferential standard, right, to a factual finding of a trial court. But that doesn't mean it's irreversible but nobody even tries to contest it. That's interesting. I kind of think we're going to see that same posture because I think the facts are really bad for former President Trump. Like you could, one avenue you could see early on that just doesn't seem to get much grab so far is the fact that we're going to parse insurrection really narrowly or parse what this offense means so narrowly. I don't know whether that's because the academic arguments that have painted it broadly. And in some cases, I think problematically broadly, like I've expressed on this podcast, my reservation, that the interpretations people have reached of section three reaches a lot of conduct that we otherwise would consider constitutionally protected speech, but so be it, perhaps if it does. You know, the, the fact that that's really broad doesn't seem to be, people aren't pushing back on that so far. Uh, I, that might be another avenue, and maybe the Supreme Court will take that up, but um, none of the justices here, be, and they haven't really teed up that argument, interestingly. And I, then, I, then you have to wonder, well, if they do take that up, do they then kick it back to the lower court's? On the proper understanding of what the scope of insurrection is for a new factual finding, but then the legal matter gets dragged out another several months while they go hold another set of hearings. It it gets very messy if that's how you try and slice this thing. And I do have the sense that if the Supreme Court does take this up; they are going to try and resolve it with some finality because they seem to. I I would think they'd get that, with the exception maybe of being kicking it on the kicking it back on the ISLT idea uh, or some other idea on a state law basis and just avoiding the issue in hopes that no other Supreme Court actually takes the bait and raises it back to them again. Um, but that only works once. I think once they get a second time, then they got to kind of resolve it because uh, it'll be a sign that future Supreme, state Supreme Courts are willing to do this.
2: I think what's important to keep in mind is just how this adds one more complication for heading into 2024, which is already an election that is, I don't want to be a doomer, but there's a lot to be concerned about in terms of the fact that one of the candidates is running on an explicitly authoritarian and I would argue increasingly fascistic platform that there have been lots of concerning attacks on election workers um, and people trying to keep elections running properly from the Trump camp and from Trump supporters and. Um, that uh, And this is something that Ilhani and I have been uh, working on a piece about. The federal government has increasingly pulled back from coordination with social media platforms um, in working to counter uh, influence operations, including foreign influence operations, uh, meta- said in November that they haven't had any communication from the federal governments so or from the FBI or DHS on these issues since July, which is really not what you want to hear in the run up to a presidential election. Uh, there are complicated reasons for that, but I think that's important to keep in mind. And this just adds one more layer of complication um, and one more layer of confusion. And for me, at least what I've been thinking about in terms of all of these elements of chaos is that, you know, as with 2020 my concern is not that you know trump or someone will be able to use this to actually affect the outcome but more that the more chaos and the more confusion there is the more that opens the door for people to be whipped up into a frenzy over you know potential fears of an election being stolen again and that we've seen social media companies increasingly pulling back from exactly the kind of efforts and government coordination that you would want to see to be able to counter some of those fears with accurate information. And now also we're going to have more and more litigation about whether or not Trump can be on the ballot at all and what that means and yada yada back and forth. So strap in. Is the takeaway here.
0: Well, and a lot of those concerns are exactly why the Supreme Court's not going to want to stick its nose in this situation. Um, even if, although maybe in the end it can't avoid it. Uh, and it is very tricky, but you know, I'm also going to say this, I think I've been a criticism on this podcast while throughout there before, like this is a big moment of vulnerability for Donald Trump, right? This is like one of those big moments to say, is this a thing that will either hurt him in the Republican primary that's about to kick off or in the general election? Because, when you have a state Supreme Court potentially knocking off the ballot, if people are really are concerned about electability or concerned about other issues or concerned about the underlying allegations that now have some, you know, high level judicial backing, that's going to get a lot of national play like that could be a big issue. And I, I do wonder if this is a moment where we begin to see some of his. Rivals, I mean, I think we're definitely going to see the Democrats, uh, but even in the Republican Party, Nikki Haley in particular, being the one who seems to be kind of have the most runway and have carved out this route, begin to try and use this a little bit as a cudgel against them.
2: I'm sorry, are you being paid by her campaign? What is this I, all Nikki I'm Haley
0: boosterism? Is- it's. Uh, I think Just there is. I think that, to make
2: much happen.
0: <laughs> I think there is an av- an avenue by which uh, you know if there's ever a place like insofar as not anyone running against Donald Trump is futile is not necessarily futile. You're hinging on like moments of weakness like this collapsing in an unpredictable ways. it's such an unpredictable scenario, an unforeseen scenario, and like yeah. this is one of those big moments. So if if they can't capitalize on this in a few months, like that's a huge chip down uh, on the idea that. Anything anybody, I think, other than Donald Trump being the nominee is going to happen in 2024. But this is one of those critical moments which coming into Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, a big sign of weakness, a big concern there. Markets where a fair amount, a small amount of money can hit, push an idea to key voters in an early primary. Like smaller issues have had bigger impacts in those early races. And it throws a real curveball, I think, at the Republican primary potentially. Not necessarily, not so with certainty, but. You know, I, nobody's ever seen anything like this before. And this is the sort of curveball that like, if Nikki Haley has any chance of winning, like this is the thing she has to capitalize on by sinking on him. So I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Nobody else is holding their breath. I don't think, but I am <laughs> just to see, just, just to see what cut. happens. Not necessarily out of excitement, but just out of curiosity at this point.
3: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. The Red Sea. (laughs) Recently, I think as of a couple of days ago, BP became the latest of a series of companies, particularly shipping companies, but also other commercial entities that announced that they were going to pause transit through the Suez Canal due to Houthi attacks, Um, there have been more than 100 attacks in the last month alone. And 44 countries have had some connection to the vessels that have been attacked. The Houthis are doing this, they say, as revenge against Israel for its actions in the ongoing war against Gaza. It's worth noting that they were engaging in these types of attacks before, but uh, they have escalated quite a bit. Oil prices are already up. Uh, There are expectations that there are going to be significant supply chain problems as ships are having to reroute around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, which, needless to say, is much, much, much farther away. Um, And there are going to be all sorts of complications with logistics and planning and rerouting. Um, These types of things take a lot of work and a lot of time to plan in advance, given how long these trips take. So um, as Scott mentioned up top, on the 16th of this month, DOD announced a joint operation to protect commercial shipping, which I agree has a notable name, which is Operation Prosperity Guardian. Uh, It's a coalition with the UK, Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, the Seychelles and Spain. So, uh, Quinta, I want to turn to you first, uh, just as a general matter. There's a lot to talk about here, but what do you make of all of this?
2: Well, I'll start off by saying that there's something so delightfully mid-century about a political crisis involving Israel and the Suez Canal. Um, It's just a real blast from the past. In all seriousness, I mean, what this... Initially, makes me think of is a conversation that we had on Rational Security the other week uh, with with Ben, um, where we had talked about these Houthi attacks, um, not on commercial shipping but on uh, U.S. vessels, um, and had debated to what extent that had kind of made it into the American collective consciousness as part of the war in Gaza, you know, as a as a component um, of the issue. And at the time, I had said. I felt like it just really hadn't registered. Um, Americans, American media were much more focused on the like what was actually happening in Gaza. And now I feel like this is kind of broken through. Maybe because, you know, it's the economy stupid, everybody cares about oil prices. Um, but it felt like to me, just kind of watching how different news outlets covered it. Watching uh, where it you know ends up on the front page, right? Like this is the top story in the New York Times, um, or it, it was yesterday. That it's kind of m- the Houthis have managed to to uh, raise the the profile of what they're they're doing, which I don't know perhaps was the entire goal in in the first place. I mean, Scott, I'm curious how, how you are thinking about this and and whether you see it as kind of an escalation of Houthi tactics in response to the war in in Gaza? I mean, what do you make of it?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it it's definitely an escalation, but uh, I think of really, you know, Iranian tactics. The, the Houthis is a group of very close ties to Iran, uh, as are a lot of other regional proxies. We've seen Iranians do very similar things like this around the Persian Gulf. So, you know, the most recent incident is in the summer of 2019. We saw a spate of attacks against international shipping in the Persian Gulf, separate body of water, you know, on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula that ranged everything from drone attacks to, you know, covert mines being placed on the side of boats, things like that. Um, And that itself was kind of a repeat of a lot of tactics that happened during the Iran-Iraq War, uh, where the subject of international legal dispute uh Uh, and political dispute for a long period hanging out from that for that war and has been kind of a little bit of a recurring theme. It's part of the broader tactic that Iran pursues to put pressure on the United States, on other countries, on the international community over issues over which it takes umbrage. And usually that entails different types of security threats or in this, this case threats to international commerce. What makes this new is that it is the Red Sea which is I means it's a conduit for a much broader range of international trade than the Persian Gulf. Both are pretty important internationally, but you know, it is a, a this is a major conduit for all sorts of trade uh, to and from between Europe and the United States and the rest of the world. Uh, otherwise, you have to go around the Cape of Good Hope, meaning all the way around Africa. Um, so it's a much longer path that some shipping companies are now pursuing because of this conflict. And it's notable because part of the reason I suspect this hasn't been an avenue that has been pursued as seriously, although Houthis have done occasionally things like this in the past, is because it is really directly in conflict with an international maritime security operation that's been operating in this area for the last 20 years. Uh, This is the, the body that this new operation is going to be operating under. That is a coalition of something like 39, 40, something like that, states that have been coordinating maritime efforts and maritime security efforts in a number of corners of the world, including this one, primarily in response to piracy. Um, which was a big concern for the first 10 years of the 21st century until it got substantially under control, including in this area, including then it was pirates from Somalia. People were worried about Um, now it is Houthi actions from the other side. The complicating factor here is that the Houthis are a different type of military actor they have m- better military capabilities certainly than somali pirates that were uh you know primarily people working with small arms and skiffs and just capitalized on the fact like most major shipping containers don't really have meaningful security and are only run by like you know, a dozen people. um, So they're not that hard to take control of this. That is not what the Houthis are doing. They're launching rockets. You know, there were videos, the Houthi media network released of them using, you know, combat helicopters to land on the decks of ships and deploying well-trained commandos. So it's just a different sort of more complex operation, much higher threat level. um, Some of which is being based in mainland Yemen, which triggers another question uh, because there's kind of international law. There's pretty accepted right to act against pirates and piracy. There's like in the original bete Noirs of international law, there are always a very idiosyncratic, unique category of enemy that everybody could do anything against because everyone hated piracy in the 18th and 17th century when these things were being hashed out. But this isn't just piracy, right? Like this has a much more element of state conduct and Houthis Kind of claim to be a government in Yemen, but nobody or very few people recognize them as such. But they have a lot of capabilities that are more like a state actor. So it's just super complicated where this fits in. I think everybody agrees it's a problem, but it, it, I think it reflects some of the slow build towards some sort of response. Right now, it seems like most of the response has been defensive. Um, you know, kind of shooting down missiles and rockets, deterring and scaring away uh, efforts to approach these ships, things like that. But. I, it might not stay there. I mean, you might get to the point where you see people hitting Houthi targets in Yemen. Um, but that's something I think that hasn't happened so far, and, and in part because the Biden administration and others are loath to take actions that look like they're involving themselves in a land war in Yemen, a country where they've you know, been very actively trying to wind down an ongoing conflict involving the Houthis as a major party. So all told, it's a very complex, complicated situation. But one that has a kind of a straightforward solution, which is just you just have to man up security and start hitting the targets here that doesn't. But in the end, it does seem like it's going to put some more pressure on Israel and whatnot to to begin to wind up the conflict. But I don't know if it makes that big a difference of Israel compared to other states. Like, I, I, I'm not sure that that many states gonna be that inclined to give. To, to respond to this in that sort of way by changing their policy on Gaza because the tactic is so opaque and there's going to be such an instinctual response saying this is some the sort of thing we've opposed for 20 years. We're going to push back against this on a lot of fronts pretty handily separate and apart from our Gaza policy. Um, so, so it creates some pressure, but I don't think it's, I, I, I hesitate to give it too much credit for changing policies. I think a lot of Frankly, just the characteristics of the Gaza conflict generally and genuine reservations about what's happening there is driving that shift in policy, not, not the Houthis actions and certainly not the Red Sea crisis.
3: Yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned before, the Houthis have been using this technique for a long time now, not not to this degree. But I agree with you, Scott. I, I think that this is going to have limited impact in getting states to significantly change their policy with respect to Gaza. I think, you know, the, the U.S. assessment is that the Houthis are being completely indiscriminate as to who they are targeting. So countries are experiencing this in a bunch of different contexts which may or may not in their minds have direct correlation with Israel in in terms of whether this whether changing a policy would make any difference in whether their ships are going to be attacked. I'll also just say, though, I think, you know, from from what I've read, the economic consequences of this, even if it gets better quickly, are going to be pretty significant because having this sort of disruption has cascading effects. So, you know, the insurance rates for these containers are going to go up, which is going to affect stock prices, There are going to be supply chain delays that are going to change pricing for key goods, including the movement of food. So this is something that we experienced during COVID, which was, you know, a moment where suddenly everyone realized that, in fact, for goods and services to move around the world, you needed someone planning the logistics and ships actually needed to move places. I do wonder whether there are any lessons learned from COVID such that supply chains are a little more resilient, but I have no idea. I would leave that analysis to to people who are much more versed in these issues, but it, it is going to have an impact. So maybe that's another way in which awareness will increase to what's been going on in the Suez Canal.
1: I want to talk a little bit about Operation Prosperity Guardian and who is a part of this um, amazingly named coalition. It surprised me that there is only one Arab nation that actually joined we have Bahrain, and from what I've been reading, the citizens of Bahrain are already uh, protesting or will protest the their government's participation in the in the coalition. So. I guess I was wondering, what is the implication of a lack of buy-in from other actors in the region in the coalition, And does it mean something for its potential for deterrence or the prospect of an escalation?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really sharp observation. And it's an interesting way to think about how they're framing this. So this is being framed as like an operation under Combined Task Force 153, which itself is a kind of sub-team if you will, of the combined maritime forces, which is this broader alliance that does maritime security, not just in kind of the Red Sea, but in a number of corners of the world. So the, the broader umbrella organization has participation from a number of Arab states, Egypt, Oman, UAE, I believe, uh, uh, I think Saudi Arabia as well. Yeah. So a lot of the Gulf states, a lot of the states are like kind of directly implicated here. And, and several of them are also involved in 153, the task force that does specifically around the Persian Gulf. In fact, like the Egyptians were actually the commander of that task force, I think until like last year, the year before, relatively recently, although it's mostly been American commanders. The, the chart they have on the website about this is very hard to read. So maybe I'm misreading this, but this is what it seems to be telling me. Um, certainly it's, it implies Egyptians have been involved at a high level recently. But I think it's telling that this special operation it has that limited participation and the Bahrain inclusion is kind of hard to avoid because all these forces are based out of Bahrain, right? So like if Bahrain's not involved, then like Bahrain's obviously involved, they have to be, um, if they were doing this and it didn't look like Bahrain was on board, Bahrain would face pressure to tell them, stop what you're doing. You're here as our guest. You, you don't have permission to do this. Um, so, you know, that's kind of an unavoidable consequence for Bahrain in hosting these sorts of activities. So I think it very well might be a sign that of the political sensitivity around this motion, uh, You know, look, no one has more to lose in this than some of the states in the region, um, particularly Egypt. I mean, like, if the Suez stops being a major conduit for global trade, Egypt's economy is going to tank, among other factors, among other regional actors, right? Um, So it's really not good for them. I think they have every interest to see this addressed. But for the moment, they might be willing to see it handled primarily by other coalition partners, at least most directly and actively, um, and who have the most significant maritime assets able to handle a sophisticated rival like the Houthis that have substantial military capabilities are deploying here. So like a a lot of these coalition partners, I suspect, might not easily be able to shoot down Houthi drones and rockets, um, but Americans can. I suspect Brits can and a few of the other participating countries. So it might be one of these classic cases where, because of political sensitivities, it shapes how we talk about our coalition, but the actual states that have an interest in what's happening is a little broader and more complicated.
2: Well, speaking of total economic chaos, Argentina. Eugenia, you are in beautiful Buenos Aires, uh, where Javier Milei has just taken office. Uh, so for listeners who have not followed him, he is a self-described anarcho-capitalist. Uh, he has truly weird hair um, and a number of cloned dogs. Um, and I highly recommend listening to Eugenia's excellent podcast. I've fortunately forgotten the name of the guest, but it was an excellent overview of Millet and why there is uh, more to him than the hare and the dogs. So we will we will take him seriously for this this purpose. There are a lot of questions here. I think for for my purposes, I what I'm mainly curious for your thoughts on, just to kind of frame things, is how should we understand Millet? He has been covered, I think, in the English language press as kind of a... Argentinian Trump. Um, I think that is very tempting because, again, weird hair. Um, He was sort of a mainstay on Argentinian television. He definitely has a lot of far right political views. But I'm always hesitant about making those kinds of comparisons because so often they really allied genuine regional differences. Um, And in this case, uh, Millet's rise, as far as I understand it, is very much connected to what I will describe as Argentina's unique economic situation, by which I mean, it makes literally no sense at all. And I tried to understand it before while researching this segment, and uh, it made my head hurt. <laughs> so I guess, so what do you think of the, the Trump-Millet comparison? Should we understand him as sort of another figure as that's come to power as part of this sort of global rise in far-right populism, or is there something different going on?
1: Right. So first off, thanks for the plug for uh, the amazing conversation that I had with Ana Paraguirre. Um, and this is actually one of the things that uh, we talked about in that podcast. So I'm going to try and do justice to what she was explaining to me. I think, of course, the comparison between Milley and Trump is tempting, especially when you're trying to explain to a foreign audience, what does this man stand for? Um, and And there's Reasons for that, not just the, you know, maybe the eccentricities, the showmanship, but the far-rightness of, of them both.
0: And the hair. The hair is a big part of it. And I the think. hair,
1: yes. And, you know, I think Millet has also capitalized on that. He has, he has like fan art that he shared on Twitter or X that is him and Trump and Bolsonaro, and so clearly there is an attempt at recognizing similarities between him and these other, you know, big manly men. But I do think that there are clear differences, and it it has to do with the economic situation in Argentina. Millet, at his core, he's a libertarian, and he, you know, his biggest proposals are economic and he is advocating for a smaller role of government for the reduction of government spending. And then just to, you know, either dollarize the economy or shut down the central bank, all, all of these grandiose proposals. I think that libertarian leaning strikes me as very different from what Trump tries to focus his speech on. On, uh, but you know you can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. There, it just seems like he's, of course, tailoring his speech. Even if he relies on some of the same techniques, he's tailoring his speech to what the people in Argentina are focused on and are worried about, and and that is very different. Now, is he part of the rise of the far right? Generally, I would actually love your thoughts on, on how you compare this compared to uh, countries that you've been focused maybe more on, on democracy globally, but there seems to be some critical differences with others, even if he is a far right populist, although he would hate for me to say that because he tries to present himself as, as the solution to the left populism in Argentina, he... Is still a far-right populist, I would I would feel comfortable saying that. But no, you know, he's not a cookie-cutter. Um, oh well, if you understand this other far-right leader, then you understand Miley. I, I don't think that's that's fair.
2: Yeah. I mean what it makes me think of is right. So if you compare it to like Bolsonaro, for example, who went around calling himself the Trump of the tropics, which is just a hilarious thing to Do. Right. It seems like Malay is very distinct in a number of ways and that does come out of the very distinct Argentinian political and economic situation. I cannot emphasize how confusing this is also.
1: Um hey, honey, back me up on this. I'm backing you up. I still don't get it. You just you just live it. You know, you, yeah. you don't understand it. You live it. Yeah. And and I wanna say Milay does have a, a critical difference. He has the five clone dogs, which I know it's not all of it, but it it, it is very unique. Yes, and Trump Trump doesn't
2: like dogs, so there you go. But I mean, yeah. I, I there was a um, America's Quarterly had uh, sort of rundowns of like quick takes on Millet's election, and what I thought was actually interesting was they had a bit about you know what does this mean for Argentinian democracy? But it was actually from the other direction. It wasn't what does Millet's presidency mean for Argentinian democracy. It was will Millet's opponents. From the kind of Peronista coalition block him from taking office or engage in all kinds of other chicanery, which I feel like now we're like deep in Argentinian history. But the the fact that Millet is coming to office opposing a political movement that itself has a very odd populist element. I mean, I will say I was talking with someone about Millet the other day, and they said that they'd been to Argentina and had had a bunch of conversations about the legacy of Juan Perón. Um, And it was very odd because you would talk to the communists about Perón and they would say, oh, he's a fascist. And then you would talk to the people on the far right about Perón and they would say, oh, he's a communist. So like, everything is just completely upside down here. And I do feel like Understanding Millet without that context is kind of flattening it in a way that's not helpful. But it does feel like there's a there's certainly a populist. I I guess I feel comfortable situating him as part of a general populist wave, although the particular undercurrents may be different.
0: I kind of want to I kind of want to push back on that a little bit, maybe. By my understanding, I really want to hear what you want to hear on this, because In my mind, like the notable. Aspect of this moment of like global right wing political movements is a weird constellation of social issues that kind of glom around, right? Like whether it's Trumpism, Bolsonaro, Putinism, Hungary, Poland, all these things that my understanding is that Millet doesn't lean into all of that whole bucket of issues. I understand he's like pro life pretty aggressively maybe i'm mistracking this or misunderstanding this but on this my understanding is he's pretty much socially liberal fairly socially libertarian as well maybe that's because of like the difference of the political spectrum in argentina maybe that's still he's still on the right end of the political spectrum there but like he doesn't seem to be leaning into those sorts of counter culture sort of moments that are a big part of that kind of global movement of which there are definite connections between orban putin trump Bolsonaro, right? Like they go to conferences, they have play, they attend each other's events. Like there's definitely a relationship there. And he doesn't seem to be playing into that. I thought it was really notable. Like, and this did get a lot of press in the United States, probably more than it deserved, but it was notable that, you know, Millet, among other things, had a very warm embrace of Volodymyr Zelensky when he visited, right? And has been very vocal of support for Ukraine and ties to the United States, which would you know, I think set him apart a little bit from some of those other efforts, um, and, and critical of of Ru- Chinese and I don't know about Russian ties, but of particularly Chinese ties. Uh, worried about over reliance on China. Uh, Eugenia, does it? So, how does this fit on like the social issues? Like, is he, is he really more of a libertarian and not a social conservative, or does are there more ties there than I'm giving credit to?
1: So, my gut says that you're right, um, and I think that's just because his focus is on the economy, and that makes sense because the economy is. I would say, first on most people's minds here, right? Because what you're worried about is the 140% inflation. You're worried about the 40% of the population that is under the poverty line. So recognizing that the spectrum of positions on social issues in Argentina is different from how it would be in the US. He does have positions, you know, he has articulated what his policies around, access to health, uh, access to education, social plans, which are a big, uh, a big item here. He has asked, I think in terms of abortion, he said that there would be a referendum because actually people don't want access to abortion, but I don't think those things are what he really cares about and really what he cares about access to education or healthcare. He's worried about the economic implications of that. And so it's not because he's trying to corral people into a position of, I don't know, I'm a man and this is my role in, in the world and women should stay home. It's because he, he's just talking about the economy. I don't think he feels necessarily as passionate about the other social issues. And I think that's a difference with the other maybe far right Trends, which I would say, I think also focus a lot on on the challenges of immigration. And I haven't seen that as part of um, the discourse here. Uh, There isn't a, you know, this is the Argentinian identity uh, that we need to protect. And everyone out there is trying to come out and, and get us.
3: Yeah, I, I wanted to come back quickly to the economy aspect of things, not because Quinta, I have a magical explanation for the Argentinian economy. I do not. But as I was reading about some of Millet's proposals, I saw that he's uh, suggesting that he wants to engage in, I think his wording for it, although it was translated, so who knows, who knows, um, was shock adjustment. Um, so I was having flashbacks to my undergraduate studies in uh, development. And you know, th- to me, that's alarming because shock therapy, in especially in the 1990s, led to such disastrous results. There was there was a study. I was just looking things up to remind myself of my uh, previous knowledge of these topics. Um, there was a study that the Lancet did in 2009, really, really comprehensive study, looking at rapid privatization in the former Soviet Union after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, And they looked at the rates and speed of privatization and there was a surge in excess mortality of 13 percent. So that was uh, and then the U.N. estimated that there were three million avoidable deaths in the former Soviet Union in um, the early 1990s there was this dramatic decrease to life expectancy within a couple of years of the fall of the Soviet Union, There, uh, including among working-aged men in countries like Russia, a 42% decrease in life expectancy. I mean, it was really, really dramatic. Um, and there were just enormous uh, increases to the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of uh, social inequality. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in this to the extent that Part of Millet's appeal, given that so many people as their primary concern is is the economy and that Millet is an economist by training, you know, is is that something that has been as much of a selling point as it seems Um, that, you know, is it. On, on the Trump point, is it analogous to, you know, for a lot of people who were not into Trump's populist message, the thing that was appealing about him was that he was a, quote, businessman and would be good for the US economy. Um, you know, is, is there some element of that to it? But Eugenia, I'm curious, whether you think the fact that he is an economist and that he's proposing these things is something that is appealing to people who are focused so much on the economy?
1: So, I think the fact that he comes from an economic background is definitely part of the appeal. But it's more than that, the fact that he presented himself as an outsider to the political caste, right? He drew a very clear differentiation, especially at the beginning of his campaign, between him and everyone else, right? Both what I think he called the people who were currently in government and then the opposition, the Well mannered opposition, which would be the other major party, Junta por el Cambio, which no longer exists, uh, just disintegrated. So it's the fact that he was proposing a radical change, the fact that he was leaning on, we're going to make things completely different. We're not going to give you half measures. What you need is the shock. And to his credit, his, you know, his first speech as president after he uh, took over, he took office last weekend, he he talked about that. He talked about how things are going to get worse. He said, here's how things are terrible right now. And people were cheering to that. If you listen to the way that Ana Parraire was dis- describing the speech and, and people celebrating that someone was saying things will get bad. And, and no one is under the impression that the solution is going to be magical or fast or easy. I, I was looking at a survey that says like 60% of the people who, who responded recognize that things are going to get worse and are willing to give melee up to between nine months and up to a year before they start kind of demanding to see positive change. So there is a willingness to you know have some patience to see how – this solution that is different from what has been tried before here uh, will actually lead to, we'll see what the actual implementation is. And we'll see, I think one of the biggest questions in my mind is it's easy to rationalize and to say, well, yes, of course we need big radical change. And of course it's going to get worse before it gets better. But once it starts affecting your pocket, once it starts to be harder to buy groceries or pay your rent at the end of the month how long will people maintain that well we'll give him a year and when we're going to start seeing maybe more public outcry for his policies
0: so just before we close let's because we've been talking about around it but we haven't actually said what exactly he's proposing as we understand it so far my understanding is there's kind of three big prongs that are at least talked about the most in kind of the international media one is dramatic cuts on government spending um, to try and tame da- tamp down inflation because government spending is seen as a vehicle for inflation, at least by, by many economists. Second is a rapid devaluation, which I think you may have already implemented by like 50% of the peso on the idea that this will create a deficit of the value um, between that and where it was trading in the global economy. And that by virtue of having a cheaper currency, Argentinian exports will increase and its foreign exchange reserves might increase uh, over time. So it basically give a Give a competitive advantage to Argentinian exports for a period of time that might help reverse the kind of broader economic trends. And then he talked about dollarization at some point. It, it seems sounds to me like he's backed away from that at least anytime soon um, for a variety of practical and political reasons. Um, but talked about potentially repegging the Argentinian currency to the U.S. dollar, which was the case for much of the 1990s, but ultimately proved problematic and kind of fell apart in the early 2000s. Does that sound right to you? Are there big parts of this we're missing? And and you know what what is the the context around the willingness to, to entertain these sorts of proposals and what may or may not ultimately find its way on the table?
1: Before I go into what the actual uh, proposals are, which is a big question, um, let me just remind you, he took office on December 10th, a Sunday, and I believe most of the time since then it's been taken up by trying to conform his cabinet, his government. It's been, you know, The problem with being an outsider is that you might not have a lot of people who are prepared to take uh, office and know how the federal government works and uh, what their offices will be, especially if you're reducing the ministries from 18 to 9. There's been a lot of reshuffling. There's been a lot of quasi-informal announcements of this person might be taken on, but then back in, you know, backtracking that. So a, a lot of the work last week has been on that, like what we don't we don't necessarily know what the actual policies are going to be because we don't fully know what the compromises might be with some of the new members who are coming into the fold and who might not be willing to fully endorse his radical uh, proposals from the campaign so uncertainty is a big it's a big item what we do know today at the time of recording so Wednesday We know that tonight he's going to be introducing a massive decree of necessity and urgency that is supposed to outline uh, measures for economic deregulation, reduction in government spending and changes to the labor market. So we don't know what those policies are actually going to be, but they're coming. So we'll actually have more information tomorrow um, about what is actually being put forth and in which areas he's actually moving forward with his promises from the campaign, and where he's maybe uh, backtracking a little bit. You mentioned, Scott, a dollarization. I think, that's, I think that you're right. I don't think he's talking about dollarization in the way that he was talking about it during the campaign, and instead focusing a little bit more on the devaluation of the peso and cutting government spending.
0: Well, folks, we are out of time today and out of time in 2023, except for our special end of year episode, which is coming next week. Uh, but for our regular episodes this year, we are out of time. But this would, not of course, not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over, headed into this holiday weekend. Quinta, what do you have for us this week?
2: I have been rereading the wonderful Jennifer Egan novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, uh, which won the Pulitzer in 2011. So this is not like a deep cut or anything. Because I have also been meaning to read uh, her new novel that came out in 2022, uh, The Candy House, which is in some ways kind of a sequel to A Visit from the Goon Squad. It turns out, Visit from the Goon Squad, great book, really enjoyed it. I tend not to like the kinds of novels that are like a network of characters interacts with one another over many years showing the, you know, the nature of human connection, blah, 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 whatever. But uh, Egan is such a great writer that she pulls it off. And I think her prose is really crisp and evocative without being showy. Um, Which is something that as a recovering creative writing minor in college, uh, I always just look at and think, wow, how did she do that? So I've really been enjoying Visit from the Goon Squad. I'm about halfway through Candy House and I'm also enjoying it. I think its depiction of social media I would describe is not accurate in Candy House, Um, but that's okay. It's still a good novel. Uh, so do read this novel that won the Pulitzer in 2011 and that you probably have heard about already. And also read the sequel, which was also well-reviewed. Those are my deep cuts.
0: Well, you know, if we're not going to endorse things that are published 10 years ago, we are we are out of luck, really, on a lot of our object lessons here. So I don't think that's a prohibitive line for us here at Rational Security. For my object lesson, I uh, received a request from not one but two listeners the last few weeks to have some sort of holiday cocktail Uh, Drink, which I've done regularly the last two years. Uh, I'm kind of out of fresh ideas in part because I've been taking a little bit of a break from heavy drinking, part because I've had the stomach flu for uh, the last little bit of a stretch here. But I I do have one thing that I thought I will will break out, which is uh, a mulled wine recipe of sorts, recipes overstating it, just the concept of mulled wine. I'm just going to go ahead and give an endorsement to It's wonderful. It makes your house smell great. It's delicious. I will say my personal recipe of preference that I will throw out there is to have. Two bottles ish of sweeter wine, relatively cheap is fine. A bottle of relatively cheap port, one, so two to one sweet so wine to port. A whole cup of, sh- of a brandy, like half a cup of brown sugar, Demerara sugar, preferably, and a bunch of other herbs and spices. But the key point, in addition to slices of fruit, I gotta say, this is the thing people leave out that's very important is star anise. You need at least one big star anise, preferably two in there. It gives it a little bit of that licorice flavor. It's pretty amazing. So that's my recipe. I will put it in Twitter apps, yeah, right? I'll put it in X to be available for folks for your holiday season, but give it a try. It's holiday season. I strongly endorse it. I like Williams and Sonoma's mulling spices. I think delightful. My mother gives me a can every year, so I'm ready for the next holiday. So, uh, but really any mulling spices will do. That will have to stand in for my cocktail of the year, but I think a little low alcohol option is, is a, is a solid one sometimes. Natalie, what do you have for us for object lessons this week?
3: I first have a note that um, just Jennifer Egan. Absolutely. Um, I remember many years ago, I was reading an article in the New York Times that was about um, children of the opioid epidemic. And I was I just stopped and I was like, this is so beautifully written. And I looked at the byline, and it was Jennifer Egan. So novelist writing uh, articles in the New York Times. Anyway, My object lesson for this week is um, the movie Rustin, which is um, the story of um, Bayard Rustin, who's a civil rights activist and someone who should be much, much, much more well-known than he is. He was crucial in the planning of the March on Washington in 1963. He was an activist long before that who was really influential in his day, but whose influence was uh, tamped down on even then, um, in large part because he was gay, um, also because he had earlier in his life been a member of the Communist Party. And so um, some of the leaders of the civil rights movement were concerned about putting him too front and center in um, the public eye. But within the movement, he was exceptionally well-known. He He really is, I think it's fair to say, one of the real architects of the March on Washington in the sense that he was the one who put it together. You know, he he spoke there, but he really planned the logistics. He, he worked with a team to get the word out, to get people to actually attend. There was a time, a, a long time where this march was being planned, where there was a question about how you were going to get enough people to the mall to actually attend this event. And by the time they, they were done with it, there were 250,000 people there. So it's a really interesting story. There have been a couple of books about him recently as well. Um, there's an article in The New Yorker that sort of compiles uh, what's come out recently, including this movie. I just think it's it's wonderful that he's having a moment, um, much belated as it is, of recognition for his work. As a side note, it gives me a little hope that maybe in another 30 years, we'll get some stories of all of the women of the civil rights movement who are also unsung heroes, especially insofar as the people who do the nitty gritty logistics and make these things actually work are not the ones who are famous and sometimes don't get the credit they deserve. But it's an interesting story. Like I said, I'm glad he's he's getting his moment. And so I would recommend it to everyone.
2: I will just say, I saw that being filmed in DC, um, which was very cool.
0: Cool. All right. Well, you know what do you have to bring us home? I'm excited about this one. What do you have to share with us yes. this week?
1: I, I do have to say before I before I reveal what my object lesson is that one of the things that I was not expecting out of participating in rational security was uh, developing this relationship with some of the audience, lovely audience members who keep sending me game recommendations after every episode. Please keep it up. I love it. So this is a series. It's not one game. It's my absolute favorite game series. I think I've played each one of them uh, at least three times. It's the Dragon Age series, starting with uh, Dragon Age Origins, which is a 2009 game and everything that comes after it. I am bringing them up not only because they're my all time favorite and that's always a good way to end the year, uh, just by talking about your favorite things. Um, but because there was another teaser for Dragon Age number four a few weeks ago, which was very brief, but restoked my, my energy for it. So here's hoping that, uh, 2024 will bring us Dragon Age four.
0: Dragon Age 4 in 2024. You heard it here, folks. We are all pulling for it. Only one thing can pull this cesspool of a year out of its (laughs) inevitable tailspin. That is Dragon Age 4. Uh, But we are excited about it. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work, and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series while you're at it be sure to follow us on twitter or x at RETL security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening and sign up to become a material supporter of lawfare on patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits for more information visit lawfaremedia.org support our audio engineer producer this week was noam osband of goat rodeo and our music as always was performed by sophia yan we are once again edited by the wonderful jen patcha howell on behalf of my co-host quinta and our special guest natalie and eugenia i am scott r anderson we will talk to you The week after next week, because we have a special episode next week, and then we will be gone. But until then, regardless of when it comes next, until 2024, we bid you goodbye.